All right, well, I'm going to start us here, and we are in something called the journey through Scripture. If you're uh, here with us and it's been a while, um, I'm going to give a few clues as to which book of the Bible we're talking about today. But we've been working all the way through the books of the Bible, one book of the Bible every week. And so someone asked me just this week, Troy, why did you choose to do that? Uh, Thanks for leading us in that direction, but man, you're taking on one book of the Bible every week. Um, so please continue to pray for me. Uh, my, study has been, my study has been great. I'm learning so much as, as I go through this. And um, not only are the books a good read during the week, but as you do this in your own time with the Lord, wow, you just you read a verse and it feels like you've never read it before, although you know you have. But God's Word is alive. It's, it's, uh, it's living, and it, it, it really gives us exactly what we, we need spiritually. So... I invite you to uh, join us in this uh, journey through Scripture. Um, the, the, the book that we're looking at today is about four Israelite friends. They find themselves in exile there in Babylon. And uh, you probably know them, these friends, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they, they were bullied. They were given those Babylonian names. Uh, they're in chapter 1 here in this book that I'm not naming right now. Hope your mind is already going there. Um, they, in chapter one, it says that they were given these Babylonian names, and those names represent Babylonian gods. So you're already brought into the context there in chapter one about what's the culture, what's the setting there. So their their struggle is to remain faithful to a god and to continue to follow this story of God in the midst of living in an empire who does not call on God as they are calling on God. They have many other gods, and so it's oppressive. There's this tension for you as well, and for me, of being a Christ follower. Have you felt that tension before? We don't have to go to Babylon to feel that tension. Tension is in any country or in any city where a Christ follower finds themselves. And that's because a Christ follower believes and is following the story of Scripture that is saying Christ is king of the world. He's king of the world. And yet, with the amount of chaos in our world and in our city, if you're awake as a Christ follower, you have to be asking, how do I maintain belief? How do I maintain belief? that Christ is king of the world when there's all of this uh, chaos around me and in our world, and it looks like they're winning. And so here we are uh, in the book of Daniel, our narrative summary. I'll give a quick narrative summary, and if it feels like it's moving fast and there's a lot of details going on, great. Uh, Welcome to the Bible and welcome to the book of Daniel. There's uh, half of the book of Daniel, Uh, are those famous stories that you and I know of. In fact, we're probably thinking of them right now. Daniel uh, in the lion's den. And um, those are great uh, stories that are taking place in the first part of the book. Uh, And then the second half of the book, though, is uh, dreams and visions. And um, later on, after the narrative summary, my sermon is going to be focusing not on Daniel in the lion's den, um, and you're thinking, well, what's your sermon going to be about? Um, it's going to focus on one of the visions that David has later on in, in the book. 
What's, da- what's Daniel's purpose in writing this book? Well, again, he's trying to give and offer hope to a group of exiles who are wondering, where is God? Is God aware of what we're going through? Does God even give a, where is God? Um, So he's wanting uh, to offer hope to God's people who are there in Babylon, as well as to offer hope to all generations, not just those in that uh, era that uh, the book of Daniel is being written to. Which then caused me to ask this week, how else is Daniel used in the Bible? Is that book referred to in other parts of Scripture? The answer is yes, overwhelmingly yes. Jesus himself uses and quotes from the book of Daniel. And Matthew chapter 26, Jesus used imagery from the book of Daniel to describe and confront oppressive leaders of his day. That they were like beasts. And those are going to be some key words, oppressive leaders slash beasts, that's going to come up later on in our narrative summary as well as in the sermon. And uh, John the Visionary, the writer of the book of Revelation, if you've read that recently, you've probably thought, well, this sounds a lot like Daniel. Well, guess what? John the Visionary, writing the book of Revelation, adapts a lot of the same themes that are in the book of Daniel such as beasts and oppressive leaders that both have an application for its original day, both in Daniel's day, both in the the writer uh, John in the book of Revelation regarding Nero and and that leader there in first century. And it also applies to our day. And so once again, Daniel is writing to give hope to exiles who feel like, and everything else around us is making us feel like God is not here. God isn't real, God doesn't, because if God were real and cared, uh, we wouldn't be dealing with such injustice and bullies. And that's the tension that these friends, Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are facing, and it's the same tension that you and I face. Major themes that we pick up in this book is God's grace. God's grace, God's grace. You see the willingness of God's people to step into danger For the sake of the Lord. They're being persecuted, yet they remain faithful to the Lord. And yet we know at times we are self-orienting, we can be uh, self-protecting. And so what is it that causes these people uh, to do these courageous acts? Um, And it's because God is giving them grace to do so. Daniel is a book of prayers. Uh, The book is full of prayers, prayers of worship, cries for wisdom cries for God's help, and it demonstrates that these human characters are not self-sufficient. We have a tendency to read Daniel and say, wow, Daniel, he just kicked, I mean, check him out, look at him, and you know what, you too, you need to go and fight the lions in your life, and you can do it. Now, we hear sermons like that, we're we're sort of in a sub-Christian culture that kind of teaches us to do that, and Be a good person, and you can win over the lions. And uh, that's not our message today, and it's uh, frankly not the message of Daniel. Uh, Second major theme is there's a war going on between human glory and God's glory. Um, Again, we can be, humans can be self-aggrandizing. We can can do that, can we not? (laughs) It's real easy to see someone else doing it, and, uh, but, but we are those same people that also do that. 
Now, why does Daniel give us so much detail about the story of Nebuchadnezzar? And that's because I believe there's a lot of Nebuchadnezzar in us. We can be those types of, of people as well. They're looking to uh, make our name great and think we know better than God. So there's this human glory and God's glory that's basically at war with one another in the book of Daniel. Third major theme is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, a fancy word to mean God rules, God reigns, God is most powerful. No matter what things look like and feel like, um, in this book of Daniel, yeah, he uses, God uses a name for himself called the Ancient of Days. Maybe you've heard of that before. One of God's names is the Ancient of Days. And I think it's a very powerful name for God here, meaning the king over time and the king over all of human history. So all power, all dominion, all rule belong to God. And in the end, all kings and kingdoms, those that are evil and have their own agenda, will fail and will fall. And God's kingship and kingdom will come through the promised Son of Man, that we're going to learn about here in Daniel. Okay, is this moving quick enough for you? Slow it down. If you're saying slow it down, go read it yourself, um, and let's talk over coffee about it later at some point. Um, quick chapter summary. Again, chapters one through six is stories about Daniel and his friends. Um, very, very interesting stories. And then chapters seven through 12 is the visions of Daniel. Interesting feature here in the book of Daniel there's, and it's the only book in the Bible to do this, but it's written in two different languages. Very interesting, um, and, and even why that's so. And um, Basically, chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, and that is the language of the Israelites. That's their identity. That's a special language uh, of God's people there, the Hebrews. Chapter 2 through 7, there's a transition that takes place, and it's written in Aramaic. And you're, if you're thinking, Cap, is you thinking, why does Daniel do that? Why is the author doing that? And scholars would say the reason why there's this very intentional shift in the language as you're reading it uh, there in its original language is because they now, God's people, at uh, that time period, are now in uh, Babylon. And this Aramaic language is the language, it's the vernacular of, uh, of the day. And so it makes sense that that was a part of their identity now. Chapters 8 through 12, this gets very interesting, goes back to Hebrew. Why would the writer do that? Is he just trying to make sure we stay interested in the book? No. That's uh, interesting enough. Goes back to Hebrew as if to begin to alert the reader and the original audience that, hey, if the language is going back to our original identity, maybe, just maybe, it means that we're going to go back home. We're in exile. Maybe we're going to go back to being home. And that is our true identity. I hope that fascinates you like it does me. It's very, very interesting there. Chapter one is Daniel and his friends aren't secluded in a subculture. Please know this about Daniel and his friends. They're not in Babylon in exile thinking, let's gather all the Christians together. Let's be a cute, nice, good girl, good boy, sub-Christian culture. That's not what they're doing. They're living in an incredibly polytheistic nation and city, and they are very, very much engaged 
They're, they're, they're like planting roots. They're living there. These friends are working for the government. Uh, they're actually doing a great job, and they're actually elevated to a point uh, there in the royal palace there in Babylon. But they're pressured. They start getting pressured to, to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like the Babylons and violating the Jewish food laws that were found in the Torah, uh, first five books of the Bible, review. Uh, they, they end up choosing faithfulness to God and the story and not going along with being pressured to change their identity. And God delivers them. They remain faithful to their calling and their identity. Here's a principle for us. And God blesses that. God elevates them um, there by the king of Babylon. Chapter 2, uh, the king has a dream. And guess who's the only person who can interpret dreams? Oh, Daniel. Uh, God gives them sort of the superpower uh, ability to be able to interpret dreams. And, and who's on staff there in the government? Um, a child of God who can do that? Daniel. Daniel's the only person that can interpret the king's dream. And if you go back and read chapter 2, the, the, the king Nebuchadnezzar had, had basically um, threatened that if his own magicians and whatevers could not tell him what he had dreamed not only interpret the dream, but they were, the test was to see if they even knew the dream. Wow. Daniel is the one who could tell the king what he had dreamed and then interpret the dream. Um, so that's happening there in chapter 2. And Daniel's interpretation there in chapter 2 is God's kingdom will one day humble all the arrogant kingdoms of the world. He's talking about uh, that happening in his own day. He's talking about it happening when, uh, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But he's, he's beginning to plant those seeds in, in interpreting this, this dream to this king, Nebuchadnezzar, that God is going to bring all of those evil kings and kingdoms down. And the healing that God's going to bring is it's going to be God's kingdom that he's going to usher in. It's going to give us peace and God's reign and rule will prevail. Chapter 3, there's the fiery furnace. You're waiting for it. There it is. Story of Daniel's three friends who, they refuse to bow down to, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this statue uh, made of himself. It's 90 feet tall. It's 9 feet wide and uh, basically you need to bow to me. You need, need to bow uh, to, to, to this image and uh, they refuse to do so. They're thrown into a fiery furnace because of that and God delivers them from death. And then, guess who exalts them? The king. The king. Uh, wait a minute, I thought you wanted us to bow down to you. Now because we did it, you're exalting us? What's going on? The king exalts not only them, but then acknowledges that their God is the true God. You'll, you'll see little snippets of that as you read Daniel, that there are times when, when um, Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, there's no God like yours. I praise um, and worship your God. It's fascinating how that happens. Chapters 4 through 5, there's this pride of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it is on display. If you weren't aware of it uh, in the previous chapters, which you should be, it's definitely been ratcheted up. And um, there's also uh, chapter 5 later, the, the, the king's son, Belshazzar, who also becomes king. Uh, there's pride among both of them in chapters 4 and 5. And because of their powerful empire, both are warned by God 
uh, in dreams and visions. So God is trying to speak to Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar in these dreams and visions about their pride. And uh, once again, only Daniel can interpret this. So Daniel's interpretation is that both kings are to humble themselves before God. Quite simple. And uh, both kings arrogantly resist. They both are thinking, that's not me, I don't need to do that, I'm a pretty good guy. Uh, What's the problem? Um, King Belshazzar does not humble himself before God and is assassinated that very night. Yikes. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar won't humble himself and actually turns into a beast. That's right. Go read chapter 4. He turns into a beast. He has these feather-like winged things and there are these claws that come out of it's, it's very interesting what, what takes place to him. It, it, chapter 4 says that he lives out in the field, he eats grass, and he's basically become an animal. He's basically become a beast. And it's only when he humbles himself before God and God's reign and rule over the world that he becomes human again. Wow, there's so much that we're going to pick up in a few minutes from that very principle about how we are some of those same people that whenever we dehumanize ourselves and others, we become beasts. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar finally says, I praise the Most High God, Daniel. That God is honored and glorified, who lives forever. That God's dominion has an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is in chapter 4, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. Chapter 6, Daniel in the lion's den. Yay, there it is. You were waiting for that one. Daniel is being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship to the king of the empire as a god. And Daniel is sentenced to death and thrown into this lion's den. But God delivers Daniel, and the king elevates Daniel even higher there in the palace and also praises Daniel's God. Chapter 7, Daniel's dream. Daniel's very confused about this dream and um, actually can't interpret his own dream. It's that hard. Until there's this angelic messenger that comes to Daniel and explains it. And in this dream, there is one who is called the Son of Man, who's both an image for God's people and their coming king from the line of David. And so all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and destroys the super beast and exalts this Son of Man who comes and sits at God's right hand to rule over the nations. So the encouragement and the lesson there in chapter 7 is patience. Patience. Persevere, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all of you exiles here in Babylon. Have patience. Trust in the story. Persevere. Keep going. Hang on. Even though it looks like these evil rulers are having their way with you, God, when is God going to do that? Well, that's what chapters 8 through 12 seek to answer. Chapter 8 is Daniel's second vision. There's a ram, there's a goat, 
The ram is this image of the empire of the, the Medes and the Persians, and the goat is an image of ancient Greece. And then there are lots of horns that are kind of coming out of the goat. And um, one horn symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7 who will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. And in the end, as chapter 7 is, going to, is, is teaching us, and chapter 8 through 12 here is telling us that God is going to destroy these evil kingdoms and exalt his people and his own kingdom. Chapter 9, how, how are we doing, by the way, everyone? Moving fast enough? Okay, great. Chapter 9, Daniel's prayer. Daniel is puzzled to when all this is going to happen and he consults the scroll of Jeremiah. Hey, maybe I should go back and read the um, scroll of Jeremiah to figure out when all this is actually going to take place. God said Israel's exile would only last 70 years. We know that as, 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 as being written there through Jeremiah. And this 70 years is almost up. So when is this going to actually take place? And so Daniel asked God to fulfill his promise soon, which echoes or actually foreshadows the church's prayer, the people of God's prayer, whenever we say, come Lord Jesus. I mean, you came before, but please come again as you promised to clean up the mess. It's gotten messy. Um, so an angel does come and announce that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. Bad news. It's continued and therefore their time of oppression and exile will last seven times longer than Jeremiah had prophesied. Ouch. Chapters 10 through 12, there's Daniel's third vision. And there's the same sequence again of these kingdoms that's, you know happens again of Persia, Greece, Alexander the Great, followed by these lesser kings who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt themselves above God. But all of a sudden, these kingdoms come to a root. And the book ends with Daniel asking, what does all that mean? Daniel asks, if you look in the last chapter of chapter 12, he, Daniel asks, what will the outcome of all this be? You may be sitting here wondering the same thing. Where does all this go? And that is what your Christian and non-Christian friend is asking right now. That's one of their big and my and your big questions is how does all this end? Where does all of this go? Present day. Uh, that was Daniel's question as well. God answers Daniel and says, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. Go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Mystery, what that means. I'm not even going to spend time here trying to clarify all of that, but that's our narrative summary. And hopefully I'm just throwing out lots of hyperlinks here, inviting you to go back and read it yourself, get in a one-on-one -on -one or even a discussion group. Uh, join us um, for a community group where we try to discuss this during the week. But now a sample passage. Sample passage here. I'm going to use Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. Daniel, again, quick context. Daniel is sitting in Babylon. He's been delivered from lions, for crying out loud. But it must be tiring trying to be faithful. Can you imagine? 
Do you ever feel tired? Do you ever feel like this story that you and I find ourselves in is getting very uh, wearisome? David is sitting, I'm sorry, Daniel is sitting in exile. He's been delivered from lions. He knows God's been faithful. He he knows God has the power to overcome evil. Uh, He works for the government. He hears, though, however, that Babylon has gone and conquered another people group, one after the other. And he's asking, how long is this going to continue? How long is this injustice going to go on? I thought God was the king of the world. Yet Jerusalem is in ruins, and Babylon seems to be ruling everything. You have to place yourself in that context as you're reading this. So three things I want to try to get out of this. There's so many, but I'm going to just try to get it down to three things. Number one is, what happens to bragging beasts? Second thing is, how does God exercise his sovereignty? And the last thing is, what's the takeaway for us? Let's read the passage. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. And last week, we looked at the book of Ezekiel, and we learned that God has wheels or at least his throne has wheels, reminding us that God can be everywhere. This is what Daniel is seeing. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. Now verse 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Okay, once again, lots to discuss here, lots to unpack. And I'm getting lots of help as I do this, as I'm reading, studying, and rereading. I'm using lots of resources and Other scholars, uh, a couple that I've mentioned, I will mention again here, is the ESV Study Bible, English Standard Version. Um, That's a great English translation of the Bible, but but there's a study Bible. The ESV Study Bible has incredible um, scholastic, historical, theological notes um, for a lot of these themes. There is a podcast called The Bema, B-E-M-A, The Bema Podcast, which uh, does a lot of focusing on original context, uh, at least as it relates to the Old Testament. And so that's been uh, incredibly helpful. Uh, but, but our first question here is, what happens to bragging beasts? By the way, do you have any bragging beasts in your life right now? Uh, you're intuitive. Come on. This isn't a big stretch. Don't think I'm making stuff up. You're intuitive. We we know. Bragging beasts. 
in our lives? What happens to these bragging bees? Well, it looks like they're going to win, right? They've convinced me and you that they are winning and are going to win and there's no hope for us. And again, that's the same cultural milieu that Daniel finds himself there in exile about, is that Babylon is one of these beasts. Verse 1 through 8, which we did not read, is a vision of four beasts. And it's symbolizing arrogant kingdoms. Okay, We're not talking about, grab your sword, there's some beast over there, go get them. The symbolism, a lot of deep, rich metaphors that's being used here to symbolize arrogant kingdoms. The four beasts there in verses 1 through 8 are a lion, a bear, oh my, no, a lion, a bear, winged leopard, and even one called a super beast. And the super beast is symbolizing an evil empire having lots of horns. Sounds very frightening. And it's an image of an arrogant king and kingdom who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. That's the super beast. Horns. Let's take a moment here and try to talk about horns, okay? Horns in the Old Testament is a common symbol for kings. Horns aren't bad in and of themselves. They're just a common symbol that's there. And it's for power and for strength. It's almost like a bull. You may think of a bull that, that won't come up to you and just sort of poke you. It'll, it'll go all the way through you with its horn. There's, there's a beastly nature to some of these horns. Psalm 75 uh, is, tells us how God relates to proud horns, proud strength, finding one's identity in either their intellect, their looks, their money, their fill in the blank. This is how God feels about prideful horns in Psalm 75. He says, I've chosen, God says, I've chosen the appointed time To the arrogant, I say, or God says, boast no more. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horns. I will cut off the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. We find elsewhere in Scripture, Psalm 18 is an example, where it says of God that God is the horn of our salvation. How about Luke chapter 1? beginning to talk about Jesus as the horn of our salvation. So uh, again, you might be getting lost about what's going on here, so let's try to summarize it and make it a little bit more simple here as we go. Uh, Understand that Daniel is saying there was uh, these beasts like a lion, like a uh, winged leopard, so there's lots of imagery that's, that's being, used, uh, being used here. And by the way, Daniel's mind was steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. This wouldn't have been weird for him to, to, be, to be envisioning these beasts and these horns. Go back and read through the scriptures and your mind will be steeped as well in these images. Uh, when the prophets want to describe an oppressive king and kingdom... Guess what they use to describe an oppressive king and kingdom? Wild beast. That's an image that they use there too. Isaiah chapter 5 is an example. The armies of Babylon says that their roar is like that of a lion. They growl and they seize their prey. Babylon is coming like a pack of lions. Its instinct is just like a beast. It's not trying to be courteous. 
it's not living with self-control at all. They're just um, desires and wants and go for it, get it. Um, and so these beasts seem to run the world. Anybody agree with that? That these beasts, these powerful kingdoms seem to run our world? But verse 9 happens. Look at verse 9. Then I looked, and Daniel sees a vision of God and what's going to happen to these bragging beasts. This is a hallelujah moment. This is a praise the Lord. Finally, something is showing up right here in the midst of Scripture. And this happens uh, repetitively in Scripture. Uh, Christ isn't just showing up uh, in a vacuum and like means nothing to us at all. and is totally irrelevant to us. But there's some need for God to show up here. And so he does so in verse 9. And once again, Daniel says that God arrives and, he, and it, once again he uses these wheels. God has these wheels again. He's able to go everywhere. And the title that he uses for God is the Ancient of Days. He's the king of time and the king of history. And God is going to bring justice on the beast. That's what's going to happen. God is going to bring justice. God is going to clean house. Uh, what's going to happen? How is this going to take place? Verse 11 and 12, if you read it here in our passage today. You see the boastful words of the horn that's happening there in, in this passage. You, you see that the super beast is then sentenced to destruction. That's the end result. The beast is found guilty and destroyed and stripped of all of, it, of, all of its authority. So the beasts ruin and destroy one another. That's their nature, but God won't tolerate it forever. Please hear that today. God will not tolerate it forever. He will not tolerate what humans do to each other when we dehumanize one another and whenever we act like beasts towards one another, when we try to establish our own name and image and king kingdoms, God will not tolerate that. God will vindicate himself and God will vindicate his people. How are we doing? Everybody okay? Okay. Second question. How does God exercise his sovereignty? We try to define what sovereignty is. It's his rule. It's his reign. It's he's all powerful. Whether we feel it or acknowledge it or not, God simply is in control. That's the audacious claim that scripture is making. How does God exercise that sovereignty? Well, one would think, I don't want to be one of those followers. Why? Because I've learned to distrust people who have authority. I've been hurt by those people. I wouldn't dare want to give my life to a person who has authority over me. God proves or tries to prove throughout scripture that God is of a different nature <laughs> is of a different personhood than what you and I may be used to when we even begin to intellectually think through sovereignty. Daniel is wondering how long will all these beasts destroy people? How long will these powerful kingdoms have their way? Not forever. Not forever. God will deliver his people. That's the message. Nations will rise. Nations will fall. Kings will live. Kings will die. Nothing will thwart God's story. God's story is moving forward successfully because God rules and will advance his work until the work is complete. 
Now, the problem we seem to have with the book of Daniel, um, I, I thought this week as I was reading it, is, is we tend to miss what Daniel is, is about. Because once again, we make Daniel the hero of the book of Daniel. We read Daniel in the lion's den, and, and almost like a, you know, a, a good little child, and we, we see such action, and we're like, yeah, that's great. I want to be like Daniel. Or if I follow God, I, I guess I won't have any trouble in my life. There's a problem in the way that we, is, is that we read that, and I think focusing on the action of the human character, but missing the main character here in the book of Daniel. And actually, the, the, the main character in all of Scripture, and, and, and the big story. For us today, as we're looking in this, our passage, there is one character who is the hero. Don't miss this one character. We just read about this one character in chapter 7. It's the one glorious hero in Daniel. It's called, this is a little test to see if you've been listening, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. The Son of Man is this glorious hero here. Verse 13, the Son of Man. And if you have a study Bible with you, you're probably already noticing there that the Son of Man is interpreted for you as a human one. This is beginning to help our understanding of a human one that Daniel is seeing that's going to come and absolutely do business with the bragging beasts. It's a human one. It's also a divine one, which is getting us, and this goes way deep, but this is getting us uh, to begin to understand uh, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. Verse 14, read this with me. This son of man was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. How did Jesus read and understand the book of Daniel? We said earlier that he quotes from it in Matthew chapter 26. Well, currently, and there has been a debate about the book of Daniel for a long time as to who is Daniel really talking to? And there's one group, uh, two main views, by the way. One group would say uh, he's talking to the exploits of the Syrian king Antichus in 160s B.C., who began to murder and torture many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. And so according to this view, when Daniel's writing, that's what Daniel is talking about. And this king Antichus made it illegal to practice Judaism in Jerusalem, completely stopped the Jewish calendar, did away with Passover and their celebration of being brought out from slavery. Another main view is that this in Daniel is a set of future events. It's all future. It's all about the future events that will happen in Jerusalem. That's the prelude for Jesus returning. There's going to be a new temple being built and some super horned beast or the Antichrist will try to make over the world and Jesus is going to return and wipe them out. Now, Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus quotes from and actually handles that part of scripture, neither one of those views is the view that Jesus uses. 
That's uh, very um, informing, isn't it? Let's try to interpret Scripture the way Jesus interprets Scripture, I think is the point. Jesus doesn't use either of those aforementioned views. And Matthew chapter 26, great reading this afternoon. Verses 57 to 64, it's a story of Jesus' trial right before he's going to be sentenced to be executed. Uh, And he's brought up on these false charges. There's the high priest, the chief priest, the elders, the Sanhedrin. I mean, it's the entire government that's there that's doing this. And Jesus says in that passage, because I ask him, who are you? And he says, I'll tell you who I am. Enter Daniel chapter 7. And he quotes Daniel chapter 7. He says, if you want to know who I am, from now on, you will see one coming like a son of man. And that's when you need to go back and read everything we've been talking about. Who is Jesus implying that he is? He's implying that he's the human one. He's the human one that's been promised. And who is Jesus saying that the high priest of Israel is? The beast. Ouch. Jesus is very, like, perfectly courageous to stand up to the corrupt and evil powers of his day. And who have the people of Israel become? Like the mega super beast with the horn. Whoa. So Jerusalem has become like Babylon to Jesus. Wow, that begins to speak to us, doesn't it? Jesus claims that he is the only faithful Israelite and the rest of them have gone the way of the beast. They followed other gods, they've bowed down to idols, and they've dehumanized others. They're corrupt, they're violent, they're self-protecting. And Jesus is trying to get them to see that um, you're going to destroy this son of man? I am that one, and yet you're about to execute me? That's quite beastly, don't you think? All the beast has is this selfish impulse to kill. That's all a beast has. That's all these evil kings and kingdoms and their powers and their dominions. That's all they have. So Jesus, in a way, in saying to the entire Sanhedrin and the government of his day, is saying, bring it on. Bring it on, because all you can do is kill me. That, even that doesn't separate me from God's love. Even that doesn't separate me for the mission that God's called me to and that I'm here to establish for all who would call on this Son of Man to be their horn of salvation. Jesus allows the beast to kill him so that he can conquer the beast. That's what's happening. That's what salvation really is about. Jesus is doing something as a hero, as a representative for us that we can't do. Last question. What's the takeaway for all of us? How do we apply any of all this? You're thinking, oh, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and try and have some bad dreams like this guy was having. <laughs> what does this even mean? Horns and beasts and all of this. Some takeaways that I'm encouraging here. The first one is beware. Beware. Humbly, I say, in my humble opinion, I say, beware anyone can become like a beast. Human beings and their kingdoms can become violent beasts when we reject God's rule 
and reign in our lives, either individually or corporately. We, uh, whenever we do that, we glorify our own name, our own power. We exalt our own desires. And it's when we're given to self-preservation that we, we redefine what's right and wrong, don't we? Don't we? Use your imagination. Use that intuitive part of your intellect right now. Moments when, choices when, you and I have become like beasts. When we objectify someone, when we prize something and we have to have it and we will do whatever it takes to get it. Beware. The imagery here is really from Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the other one I found was Psalm chapter 8 where God has given us his image upon us. Um, to, you know, his royal image is upon all of humanity. We call it the Imago Dei. God's image is coming to bear on all peoples, whether they acknowledge that or not. But when humans rebel, when I rebel, when you rebel, and we make God less than ourselves, and we don't acknowledge God as our true king, we, we, we become like beasts. Um, a flourishing human it has the ability to check their impulses. A beast, if it wants to reproduce or have sex or do whatever it wants to do, if it wants to eat something like right now, done. No checking in with any other sort of God or it's all about instinct. I'm just trying to tease that out a little bit more about what that beastliness looks like. But human flourishing is that ability to check impulses. And for the Christian, it's something that God's very presence is doing inside of you that begins to check things for you. Led by the Spirit of God, where one could finally begin begin to say, hey, for me to survive, I don't have to lose here. For, for, For me to flourish and for me to think about my future doesn't mean I have to trample all over you doesn't mean I have to take yours away from you for me to get mine. That's what human flourishing is. And again, I'm inviting us to think of a situation just this past week, or maybe even this past month, uh, where we were driven by appetite and impulse. We just were. It's just part of our humanity. It's not glorious at all. My next beware is beware of pride. Pride says, oh, that ain't me. Oh, that's my friend. My friend does that all the time. My spouse is good at doing that one. Pride says, that's not me. Pride says, that couldn't be me. I'm, I love God too much or whatever. As strong as these empires and kingdoms appear today, they will fall and they will fail even one that you or I may be trying to make right now. They will fail. They will fall. Here's another takeaway. Embrace God's promise. God will one day confront the beast and will rescue his people by bringing his kingdom over the nations. Again, in closing here, a big reminder in understanding the book of Daniel is its context. Is remembering that Daniel's talking to a group of people who are in exile, wondering, How long, O Lord? 
How long will this injustice continue to go on? How long will the beast and the evil kingdom prevail? And the big point in Daniel is in the midst of all of their suffering and in the midst of all of your suffering and persecution that may come to you as they were also enduring, um, there will come a day when someone is going to come like a son of man. He actually already came. But will come again. And he's going to bring justice and restore all things. Therefore, the takeaway, last one here, is to stand firm. To persevere. Wherever you find yourself working. Maybe quite literally, it could be for the government. I have no idea. The answer here is not, let's get out of San Francisco. Or let's create a little Christian subculture and everything will be okay. We're exiles. We're exiles. They were a minority. Daniel and his friends were a minority. That, that, that exilic group were minorities. You're a minority here in San Francisco. If Christ to you is king of the world and king of San Francisco. We're a minority. Allow the spirit to speak to you. Trust in the power and love of Jesus to remake you. And to keep remaking you into a different human. Let's pray for God's power right now. Almighty God, you are the ancient of days. You're the king of time and the king of history. We we pray that you would help us persevere by trusting in the story and where you're taking the story. We are weak. We doubt the story. We, we, We assume that you must not exist or that you don't care. And Lord, we pray that you will help us stand firm Speak out. Help us speak out against oppressive kings and kingdoms. And help us not bow to false gods and beastly empires. And we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.